If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In the 19th century, cannabis, cocaine and even heroin were widely available over the counter at the local chemist. Respected scientists and doctors tested out laughing gas and chloroform on their friends at dinner parties. And artists and philosophers dabbled in drug-taking to try and unlock different states of consciousness and even access the spirit world. In his book Psychonauts, Mike J charts these early experiments in a time before drugs became taboo. And I spoke to him to find out more. You've written several books on the history of drugs and your latest is Psychonauts, Drugs and the Making of the Modern Mind. So before we delve into our discussion, could you just introduce us to your book and what you wanted to explore with it? Right. Well, I mean, I guess I grew up, like most people, um, vaguely assuming that uh, drugs had suddenly appeared in the 1960s and that before that nobody had been interested in them or they'd always been banned or whatever. In fact, it turns out that the attitude, the social kind of uh, context of drugs that we've all grown up in, the war on drugs, as most people call it, didn't really get going until the 20th century. In fact, even the word drugs, in the way that we're using it, was an invention of the 20th century. Before that, it meant, you know, just medications in general, like it still does in Superdrug or drugstore or whatever. And the things that we now call drugs, well, some of them were research chemicals, some of them you could buy in a pharmacy, some of them were sort of foreign herbs and potions. They weren't really a category. But if you go back before the 20th century, you really enter a different world where drugs were slightly disreputable and people were um, 
sort of cautious about them, but they were also not reflexively seen as a social problem. Um, people used them in all kinds of ways. And what I'm really focused on in this book, because I find it so fascinating, is that, um, you know, if you were a doctor or a scientist uh, or a philosopher or a writer or um, anything else, if you were interested in the effects of drugs on the mind, then the way that you started was by taking them yourself to see what they did. So I've taken that really as the focus for the story that I'm telling this time around was uh, what happened when doctors and scientists and um, all these people were engaged in the public conversation about their drug experiences. Yeah, and there's a lot of eye-opening material in your book. And there's also quite a lot of familiar names. Can you give us a sense of the range of people that were experimenting with drugs and how they were influenced by those experiences? One of the sets of experiments that really set this off was Humphrey Davy, the um, very famous uh, chemist and president of the Royal Society, who made his name back in 1799 with a series of experiments on nitrous oxide, laughing gas, in which he inhaled enormous quantities of it, uh, did his very best to describe what was going on in this kind of cosmic experience, this epiphany that he had, and then gave it to um, his friends who included, you know, for example, the romantic poets Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Robert Southey, uh, who all tried to outdo each other in describing this experience. And from that point on, you know, Davy became, you know, he was a great hero of science and he became a touchstone of how to self-experiment heroically and boldly and you know this was a mark of seriousness that you were prepared to do this there wasn't anything delinquent about it uh, it was very important to him forging this reputation uh, and also it became of interest to artists and literary figures and uh, you know the, the romantic movement generally and then by the end of the 19th century when Humphrey Davies experiments were still recalled there was a lot of self-experimentation by the people who were really starting to put together our modern idea of the mind uh, you know, the beginnings of psychology, the discovery of the unconscious, the birth of modernism. So these kind of huge towering figures like uh, Sigmund Freud and William James experimented with drugs, uh, were very influenced by their um, experiences, and they were not exceptions. You know, they were doing this because they were doing science in a world where everybody was doing this, and if you didn't do it, then everybody else knew something that you didn't. I'm so interested by what you say there about Davy's um, self-experimentation being taken as a sign of his seriousness as a scientist, because I think it's fair to say that if a scientist undertook these kind of self-experiments today, it would not be viewed the same. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the attitudes of the establishment to people experimenting with these with these chemicals and new drugs? Well, in many ways, the people experimenting with these sort of mind-altering drugs and using them to explore the mind were the establishment, you know, within science, at least. Scientists in the 19th century experimented very widely. It wasn't just taking drugs. It was also, you know, passing enormous electric currents through your body, you know, people sort of severing their nerves to see how long it would take them to grow back, swallowing and regurgitating things to see how digestion worked. You know, it was quite hair-raising and science in that era and drug experiments were in many ways the least of it. You know, people um, were sensible about them and started with small doses and understood how to um, 
you know, keep sort of, uh, you know, hypodermic needles clean and all this kind of thing. So I think, you know, in this kind of context where science was experimental, what you had was this idea of a trained observer. And this was often used to separate scientists from anybody else who might be casually experimenting with drugs. It was assumed that if you were a proper scientist, a member of the scientific establishment, then uh, you had a trained mind. You could, with one part of this trained mind, you could be taking a drug and having all sorts of bizarre experiences. But with another part of this mind, you would be noting down your sort of time of onset and the dose you were taking and what you were experiencing as you went along. So, you know, there was a kind of... um, a, a protocol developed for these kinds of experiments uh, within science. And uh, there wasn't in any sense kind of, um, you know, sort of marginal or radical to be doing this. Uh, it was something that you could do well and properly and um, take pride in. But there must have been occasions where things went slightly awry. There were, and uh, it happened quite often. If you look at the history of probably the great medical advance of the 19th century, anaesthesia surgical anaesthesia. This was uh, developed almost entirely by self-experiment after Humphrey Davy um, experimented with nitrous oxide. He noted that uh, it made him kind of lose any sense of pain for the duration. And lots of people had similar experiences and people particularly in the United States by the 1830s and 1840s, were experimenting with um, ether and nitrous oxide and starting to use them in dental surgery. And then the actual great moment of the discovery of anaesthesia by William Morton, who was a Pennsylvania dentist, involved him taking ether and passing out, having etherized a, a dog, you know, and then uh, all kinds of sort of chaotic shenanigans going on. And then the discovery of Chloroform a few years later, which was um, James Young Simpson, who was the Queen's obstetrician, very, very distinguished um, surgeon. He thought there was some, must be something better than ether for um, surgery. So he experimented with lots of things and eventually came up with chloroform and uh, established its efficacy around his um, dining table. After dinner, he and his uh, assistants would inhale all kinds of different solvents and uh, decide what was suitable or what wasn't. And when they inhaled some chloroform, and then um, the next thing um, Simpson said, as he knew, he was kind of, uh, he just hit the floor and he was looking up at the underside of the table and he heard this thump, thump as all his fellow researchers all collapsed to the ground next to him. And then about 10 minutes later, they all came round and went, well, this is the one then, isn't it? <laughs> what kind of things would you find in a drugstore, in the way that we think of it today as in like a, a medicinal drugstore, that we might today, for example, think only of as recreational drugs? Well, by the end of the 19th century, most of the um, 20th century's recreational drugs were still available in the pharmacy. So you would find, for example, cocaine, most commonly in patent medicines and tonics. But if you wanted, you could buy pure cocaine. You could also buy needles. You could buy cannabis, morphine. Uh, heroin, of course, was developed by biopharmaceuticals as a cough medicine, and that was um, you know, on sale over the counter. The most popular medicines in those days were um, various types of patent medicine, which had, you know, different combinations of these drugs in. They didn't normally have, uh, you know, say on their labels what they had in them, but quite often they had um, 
morphine or opium, um, particularly cough medicines, because it's, it's very good for suppressing the cough reflex. Uh, they often had cocaine because that clears the nasal passages. They often had chloroform because that kind of evaporates in a nice cool way as it goes down the throat. You had things like Collis Brown's chlorodyne, which can, can included um, opium and morphine and cannabis and um, chloroform and was advertised as a medicine chest in itself. It's quite mind-blowing today to think that you could go into a local chemist and buy cocaine or heroin or opium, as you say. How aware were people of the potential dangers of these substances? Was there a sense that people knew, for example, that they were addictive? You have to remember, of course, that there was at this point no aspirin, no paracetamol, no ibuprofen. You know, if none of these things had come along, we'd probably still be using opiates in one form or another. And addiction was not really the big danger with opiates. People understood that if you were taking them, you had to keep taking them every day. But of course, we still have plenty of medications these days that you have to take every day. That's not a big deal if it's cheap and easily available. The real danger with opiates was... uh, that there was a very narrow dosage window, you know, only about three or four times the active dose could be a fatal dose. So uh, doctors were very worried and concerned about that. Um, there was also a concern around suicide because it was such an easy, uh, easy, easy method for that. By about the 1870s, people had started to realise that um, opium and um, morphine were dangerous and needed to be controlled and regulated a little more. So in Britain in 1868, we had the Pharmacy Act, which uh, mostly controlled poisons, you know, things like um, strychnine and arsenic, but also opium. And what that meant was if anybody bought it, then uh, there was a ledger in the pharmacy and you had to write down your name and the date and the quantity that you'd bought. That was quite effective in terms of uh, deaths in Britain from opiates were relatively low by contemporary standards, maybe a couple of hundred a year. But I think once people realised that they were dangerous and you had to be careful about the dose, then they sort of plateaued out at that point. Something I was really interested to read about in your book were the conceptions of addiction. You talk in your book about this idea of a Jekyll and Hyde personality that was ascribed to addicts. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, that's right. Again, the other great development that followed anaesthesia was the the hypodermic needle and morphine. And that, you know, combined with um, surgical anaesthesia, I think that was really a profound change in the human condition, you know, because until that point, everybody who'd ever lived really would have expected to suffer terrible pain at some point in their life, quite often when they were dying and so on. But now there were anaesthetics and morphine and syringes. Pain had kind of been conquered. And doctors uh, took to to, uh, taking morphine and needles around with them. They became an essential part of their doctor's bag. And gradually, I guess by about the 1870s or 1880s, people had noticed that there were some people who were not just saving this for medical emergencies or for pain. There were people who were using them all the time, you know, for their for their nerves to repress panic attacks or for pleasure. And actually, the biggest constituency of uh, what would become known as addicts were doctors, nurses, doctors' wives, dentists, and so on. And the first descriptions come from um, nerve clinics, from private doctors who are treating people who are using usually morphine, but sometimes also cocaine with needles too much. And these are often um, 
respectable professional figures, because of course they're using private clinics. And if you look at the initial descriptions of them, nobody's really conceiving it as a disease. This is just something, you know, this is a byproduct of, you know, the wonderful advances in science, which mean that this is possible. Uh, the development of uh, individual freedom and a consumer culture, which means that people can buy what they want, you know, and the big pharmaceutical industrial companies who are sort of pumping out um, stronger and cheaper drugs more widely all the time. So addiction is really seen at the beginning just as a, a side effect or a byproduct of the freedoms of modern uh, society and the um, great developments of um, uh, pharmaceutical science. One of the most famous figures in your book is, of course, the psychologist Sigmund Freud. What can you tell us about Freud and cocaine? I find that uh, Sigmund Freud's well, cocaine episode, as it was called later, really fascinating because nobody really has ever had a good word to say for Freud's work with cocaine. Freud's um, defenders and his biographers have tended to minimise it and say, oh, it was just a juvenile aberration. And Freud himself, after cocaine became, you know, a stigmatised drug, never republished any of his papers about it and, you know, they're not in his collected works and so on. And similarly, anti-Freudians have always pointed him and go, look, he was a co crazed cocaine addict. I think um, Freud undertook his work with cocaine for a very good reason. Uh, it was very much connected to what was the great signature mental um, illness of the age, uh, which was called neurasthenia, which uh, probably we don't use it as a, as a diagnostic term anymore, but it probably overlaps to an extent with what we now call anxiety or depression or ADHD or, or, or various other things. It was, and it was the idea that modern civilization was making our brains work too hard. It was running us too hard. We were living for the machine and for the factory and our brains couldn't keep up. So we needed a stimulant that could you know, be a, a cognitive enhancer that could expand our range. So I think... Um, what Freud was doing made sense in that context. His early work with um, his first couple of papers on cocaine, uh, he established a lot of basic facts about it and also did for the only time in his life actual real-life experiments on humans, including himself. He described his own experience of uh, cocaine and the sort of stimulant, uh, uh, stimulant effects and the euphoria that it produced. But he also worked with brass instruments like dynamometers uh, to measure whether people actually did have more physical strength after a dose of cocaine or just thought they did. And uh, all that work was uh, was very interesting. But he was doing this at a time when um, the pharmaceutical industry was really starting to get going and a new substance like cocaine was being commoditized and sold you know, with very little control on advertising. So by becoming an advocate for cocaine, you were also becoming an advocate for some very exploitative business practices. The tide turned against cocaine. And I think in terms of Freud's self-experimentation, rather than being a kind of crazy cocaine fiend, which tends to be how he gets represented, I think um, his problem was the opposite. He was actually very sober and cautious. He only ever took cocaine in very small doses. Once he'd taken a small dose, he never felt any need to take another one. So he was absolutely blindsided when it turned turned out that other people were taking vast amounts of cocaine and injecting it and getting themselves into terrible trouble. So while we have Freud then 
experimenting with how drugs might be able to access new parts of the mind. Other people were also interested in how they might allow us to access other worlds or other planes. Can you tell us about the Society for Psychical Research and how they believe that drugs might help people access the spirit world? Yes, well, there were many drugs, intoxicants, some emerging from uh, anaesthesia, because of course, when people were um, anaesthetized for surgery, quite often they would have out-of-body experiences and, um, you know, come back, wake up having had amazing visions and cosmic revelations. And there were also um, drugs like hashish, which had been used in other cultures, um, in the Arab world particularly, which produced um, intense visionary experiences. And I think this is one of the less discussed effects of the retreat of religion during the 19th century, that these kind of visionary experiences until that time would have been seen in religious terms as um, divine or demonic apparitions or whatever. Once the frame of religion was uh, sort of pushed to the background, then the meaning of these experiences was up for grabs. You know, were these simply just kind of junk being thrown out by a disordered brain? Were they access to a subliminal mind that we didn't know existed? Or were they actually another dimension? You know, were they? was this the astral plane or the spirit world? Well, one figure that I do have to ask you about is Pascal Beverly Randolph, who you describe in the book as, quote, an occultist, sex therapist, transmedium, prolific author and purveyor of hashish-based elixirs for clairvoyance and healing. With a description like that, I think you need to tell us some more. I think he's a fascinating character, Pascal Beverly Randolph. He was born in extreme poverty uh, in New York in the early 19th century. He was black. We're not quite sure exactly what his um, lineage was. He never admitted to an African slave ancestry, but uh, it was often people who had that ancestry didn't admit to it. He became this wonderfully exotic figure, globe-trotting around in the spiritualist network. He was a wonderful performer. He would uh, channel famous people, um, you know, anyone from Robespierre to uh, Humphrey Davy in trance sessions. He went across to Europe and particularly to Paris, where there was a lot of interest in um, hashish. There was a literary scene in mid-century Paris called the Club des Hashichins, where pretty much everybody who was anybody in French literature, from uh, sort of Balzac to Flaubert to Baudelaire, took hashish. And Pascal Beverly Randolph learnt from magicians in Paris how to use hashish to um, really to, to inhabit this inner world, to lose yourself in a sort of torrent of images and um, symbols and hallucinations and how to focus your energies to control that power, to have um, visions and enhance your clairvoyant powers. So he came back to uh, America after this in the sort of 1860s and started uh, selling this range of um, hashish-based elixirs and tonics for uh, magic and healing and clairvoyance. A fascinating figure, if a slightly unusual one. So the world that you've described is not the world we live in today. Can you give us a sense of how attitudes towards drug experimentation and drug taking changed in the 20th century? Yeah, I think it, everything changed very fast at the beginning of what we now call the progressive era in the uh, early 20th century. 
which was marked by um, you know bottom-up initiatives, consumer campaigns, um, community organising, and you know probably the signature policy that we remember is um, alcohol prohibition in the. United States and more controls and regulations on alcohol around the world. Alcohol was this time the drug that people were most concerned about, but the prohibitions of other drugs kind of followed on in its wake. And the concerns about alcohol, as with other drugs, were that these were poisons being produced by incredibly wealthy industries and pharmaceutical companies and breweries and distillers that were harming society, particularly harming the vulnerable and all in the interest of accruing private profits. So that's the way that drugs were seen. And at the same time, you were starting to get... um, a larger kind of um, level of statistical analysis, things like actuarial tables in insurance. So you could see that people who drank very heavily or used other drugs very heavily had lower life expectancies and their health was less good. So then you started to get categories of people like drinkers or drug users, you know, who hadn't been categories before. They'd been individuals. And the 19th century, I think, had been very much the century of the individual. It was all about nationalism and individual rights. And um, uh, by the end of the 19th century, the 1890s, you were into this period of kind of decadent hyper-individualism. And the early 20th century saw a big swing against that, against individual indulgence and towards, um, you know, solid and um, social, um, you know, community initiatives. And um, at the same time, the the balance changed within psychology. People got less and less interested in uh, introspection and subjective mental states. Uh, Behaviourism came along, a new model of psychology in which all you were really interested in was inputs and outputs. You know, what's the stimulus? What's the response? What's going on in the black box of the mind in between those two is no longer relevant. And then by the early 20th century, you have things like EEG machines, you know, more and more exciting machines that you can... uh, um, you, you can attach to people's brains and see what's going in there without uh, any um, subjectivity required. People started to move away from individual descriptions of the effects of drugs towards you know, large cohort studies and trials where you sort of averaged out large numbers of people. So by the time you're at the other side of the First World War into the 1920s, then um, drugs are really conceived primarily as a social problem and not something that anybody respectable should be involved in. And um, also, um, uh, science has refocused itself away from subjective experience and, uh, you know, become much more about um, sort of objectivity and data. That is really interesting, this transition you talk about, where drugs go from being a problem for the individual to a problem that threatens the, the fabric of civilization. I wonder if you could give us a bit more on that. When we're talking about drugs, this is the this is the newly minted um, term in the early 20th century, drugs, which tends to mean opium and uh, morphine and cocaine. Narcotics becomes the sort of quasi-legal term in the States. And so drugs have... Have medical problems associated with them, but I think they also have larger existential problems. Um, you know, it's a problem that um, 
people are sort of off their heads all the time on different drugs. So it's also a, specifically a problem that people are kind of inhabiting different realities. If everybody's on drugs and some people are on stimulants and some people are on sedatives, you know, how can you really have a society when everybody's individual experience is so different? Uh, and a lot of these drugs, of course, are um, have come from other parts of the world, non-Western parts of the world. And, you know, a lot of the um, language of the science around this time is about the digital Generate habits of inferior races, and you know there's a strong racialized sense that um, uh, you know a civilized society in the 20th century is just not going to be sustainable until we um, get rid of all these um, these 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 drugs that are a drag on it. Reflecting back on all of this, why have you spent so many years looking into the history of drugs? Why do you think it's really interesting to do that? I keep finding more and more interesting um, stories in it, I guess, in a way. And I find it fascinating because um, it's so multidisciplinary. You know, you really get to cherry pick such interesting bits uh, of science and medicine and also of anthropology and the uh, arts and um, social sciences and cultural history. And this period, the late 19th century, is so interesting in that regard because uh, those different areas aren't siloed in the way that they are now. You know, some fascinating drug experience by a scientist will be picked up and uh, made into a novel or you'll pick up Strand magazine next week and you'll find some short story about, uh, you know, like Jekyll and Hyde or, or it's millions of imitators about uh, self-experiments with drugs that have gone uh, horribly wrong. And um, it's influencing the arts, you know, the uh, the. Um, beginnings of modernism connects very strongly to this idea that, well, with different uh, drugs, you can have different states of consciousness and different realities. And, uh, you know, culture is no longer a single settled hierarchical thing. Everything becomes much more um, sort of uh, teeming and, uh, uh, you know, multifarious. And there are, you know, different perspectives and points of views kind of bleeding into each other. So uh, it's a fascinating field to dig into. I mean, even having, uh, you know, been assembling these stories for about 20 years now. I still never know what I'm going to find next. Well, actually, as a final um, note to leave our listeners with, from all those stories you've assembled, as you say, are there any that really stand out to you as surprising or memorable experiences? There's one character who I have been fascinated by for a really long time, and uh, this book is the first chance I've really had to write about him. He's called uh, James Lee, and he was actually a very normal person. He was a working class engineer from Teesside who in the 1890s um, got a job as a mining engineer out in the colonies in Assam and spent the next 20 years going around mostly Southeast Asia um, discovering uh, all kinds of different drugs and making, as he said, a hobby out of um, studying them and their effects. And he's a fascinating character uh, because um, he escapes the kind of loop of drug literature, which is quite self-conscious by that point. After Thomas de Quincey and Charles Baudelaire, it's all well. It's a genre that we still recognise in the sort of tabloids, the kind of my drug hell story. And James Lee is fascinating because he doesn't seem aware of this narrative at all, and he just tells a very straight story about how he spent twenty years travelling between London and the British colonies, always seeking out drug scenes and discovering whatever drugs he could, and having fascinating experiences with them, which he describes and uh, saying, "Well, it's really just a 
question of knowledge. If you don't know what you're doing, you can uh, you know, get into all kinds of terrible trouble. But if you know what you're doing and take it sensibly and are scientific about it, uh, it drugs can really enrich your life. And he's uh, fascinating because he doesn't fit into any kind of um, conventional history of that period. But he's such a familiar character from our sort of present day, from the 21st century. That was Mike Jay speaking to me, Ellie Cawthorn. Mike's book is Psychonauts, Drugs and the Making of the Modern Mind. And it's out now, published by Yale. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.